Hello and welcome back to Pipettes in Politics. This is Ben Korb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And this is another episode of COVID-19 special Pipettes in Politics, where we're having interesting conversations with people who are affected by the COVID-19 pandemic outbreak and the response to it. Today, we're going to be talking to some researchers who are very close to me, given that they are members of the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology and also members of our Public Affairs Advisory Committee, so I work with them all very regularly. So I will be going ahead and introducing them, and then we'll get into the conversation. So the first person I'd like to introduce is Terry Kinsey. Terry is the chair of ASBNB's Public Affairs Advisory Committee, and she's also the Vice President for Research and Innovation at Western Michigan University. Terry, can you say hello to the listeners? Hi, Ben. Nice to talk to you today. Hey, thanks for joining. Also on the call is Marina Ramirez Alvarado, who is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Say hello. Hello, everybody. I also have Jeff Brodsky. Jeff is the Avanoff professor at the University of Pittsburgh and the director of the Protein Conformation Disease Center. Say hi, Jeff. Uh, good morning. Good morning. And also I have Nick Rind. Nick, um... Nick, your email with your introduction, I just lost. So, Nick, why don't you introduce yourself? I am a uh, professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School in Worcester. Hello, everyone. Great. Thanks for joining, and sorry for bungling your intro. So, I guess the first and most important question is, how is everybody feeling, and is everybody doing okay right now? Uh, so far, so Terry, good. I'm feeling good. Yeah. yeah We're doing... Uh, well, healthy. Things in Massachusetts are going pretty well. We are uh, still optimistic, um, but uh, clearly the disruption to the daily life is pretty extreme. Jeff has Pittsburgh. Uh, pretty good. Um, we seem to have uh, not had the large numbers that a lot of uh, cities in the eastern part of the U.S. have had. Um, with that said, there's still a significant uh, increase in cases, deaths, hospitalizations. But, uh, you know, I, I think like a lot of us appreciate, you know, if you're affiliated with a large medical center, um, which hopefully is not seeing a huge increase, you feel a little more protected. And thus far, the, the word is that the hospital still has plenty of ICU beds available and can handle whatever's coming down the road, but um, it's a scary time. I guess the first question that I have is, as researchers, um, what has the experience been like to try to move your lab and your research to a remote situation? How are you able to handle that? How are you able to handle some of the staff situations? Um, Marina, why don't you give us a little bit of what your experience has been like? Sure. So I am in a medical institution, and because of that, we've been more proactive in terms of the restriction. When my clinical colleagues cancel elective surgeries and not urgent patient consults, the research shield at Mayo Clinic started implementing and assessing, you know, the possibilities of closing the laboratory. I am in a privileged situation within this uh, 
pandemic and this crisis because I have pushed my laboratory to be very engaged in all aspects. Are you there, Marina? All right, I think we may have lost Marina. Nick, what's your experience been like? Uh, uh, it's been hard here. Uh, we closed down three weeks ago. Um, for me, it's not so bad. I mean, mostly what I do is sit in front of a computer and read and write all day, and that hasn't been too badly disrupted. Um, but I've, uh, you know, labs have sort of a life cycle. Um, as trainees become more senior and leave and you replace. And it turns out I'm sort of in a replacement year with a lot of junior trainees and they really have nothing to do. You know, we tell them to go home and work at home, but for them, their, their training is, is on hold. There's not much really they can do from home. Are can you, you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you, Marina. I, we'll get back to you in just a second. I just wanted to follow up with a question okay. from Nick. Nick, are you able to support the people who are, don't have a lot to do, but are there at home trying to do what they can? Uh, not really. I mean, we have, we're, so we're keeping up with some of the community aspects of the department. We still do our Friday chalk talk and people give research uh, um, presentations. Some labs have gone to virtual uh, group meetings. Um, we haven't done that in my lab yet. Uh, depending on how long that goes, we might start to uh, just to sort of keep contacts and, and uh, uh, keep in touch with each other. Um, but to be honest, no, there's really not much to do. I mean, certainly people can, you know, we can do journal clubs, people can read papers, but you can only read so many papers a week. Um, and uh, I think mostly now people have, I have one, uh, very senior student who this is perfect for, right? They're writing their paper. They're, uh, they would be doing mostly um, uh, computer stuff anyway. But for the other three or four trainees in my lab who were really at the very beginning of their training, um, it was, you know, the daily data that they generated that we talked about. It was, you know, we weren't really thinking about tremendously long-term planning. We were you know, they were learning how to do experiments, how to design controls, and that's stuff that's really hard to do uh, um, virtually. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's very much an apprentice model, the way we train our uh, junior scientists. And for at least the first, I would say, year or so, which is where I find a lot of my trainees, um, there's not a whole lot you can do if you don't have, a, you know, experiments in your hands. Marina, you're back, and I'm glad to have you back. I think... What I remember what you were talking about was is that because you're at the medical institute and at the clinic, um, things are a little bit more restrictive and have been restrictive for longer. Is that accurate? That's accurate. So my laboratory has been closed for more than three weeks. And there was a gradual but rapid response and implementation of restrictions. We have been very fortunate that the Board of Governors decided that the research enterprise at Mayo Clinic is important and that some members of the community will be in situations like what Nick was um, pointing out, that there's nothing for them to do, but yet they are at home. So all of the salaries of everyone in research have been protected until the end of April, which has 
been a huge relief for many people. Some of the research uh, community members have been redeployed based on their expertise to help with COVID-19 related activities that are ongoing and rapidly progressing. We are launching, uh, I believe today, a new antibody test that will be able to track whether or not somebody had the infection and is no longer active, somebody that has infection that is active, but is not showing any symptoms yet, which is something that is very important. And I just want to close down by saying that the Mayo Clinic has partnered with the state of Minnesota. Um, Mayo Clinic has their own um, PCR test for the DNA of the virus. And while it is not FDA approved, it's within the guidelines. And Mayo Clinic helped the state of Minnesota with the backlog of tests because the state of Minnesota didn't have access to enough reagents and uh, kit supplies. So um, this is kind of the day-to-day -day life uh, for us. My laboratory is able to do stuff. We are getting creative. We are updating protocols. We are reorganizing our computer servers and, you know, trying to find things to do in the midst of all this. I'm wondering, Terry, as a, an administrator at a university, how is your experience different than, you know, than a researcher? And, and what, are the, what are the unique stresses that you're facing at your university? Oh, great question, Ben. Um, as an administrator, we are in some ways privy to a lot of information that often the faculty and our researchers don't hear because we've got access to general counsel and the police departments, et cetera. We're dealing with um, an executive order limiting only essential functions in the state of Michigan. And so as an administrator, it's your job to determine what's an essential function and what's not. And so we've, I've, it's been powerful to have the opportunity to try and work with the faculty to explain that your research is important, but essential in this time is about protecting people and trying to do that in a collaborative way when we're really working very hard to limit the number of people in buildings and exposures. And so, you know, we've taken an approach of understanding the importance of long-term animal work, maintaining our animal colonies um, and, and things like that and helping to define who, um, who comes into the building and who, as you've heard from all of my colleagues, have their students doing whatever work they can at home. The, I'd say that the hardest part for all of us, and if you talk to any graduate school dean in the country, the graduate students are ones where we're really very concerned about them and wanting to support them, as well as our faculty that are untenured or on the tenure track or getting ready to go up for promotion from just about every university I've heard of, including my own. It's making that decision to extend the tenure clock and to do what we can to be supportive. What are some of the things, maybe the, maybe the things that people aren't exactly focusing on right now, but there are concerns that you have that this, you know, lab hibernation mode that we're in right now, the long-term effect that that's going to have that people maybe aren't anticipating right now. Uh, Jeff, I'm going to put you on the spot first and see if you have any thoughts on just kind of what are some of the problems that we're not seeing that maybe you're feeling or sensing might become an issue as we move, you know, further along and as these, you know, as the, as the restrictions remain for a longer period of time? Yeah. Um, it sort of uh, kicks off of what the others have said. You know, we, 
and 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 in my own experience, right, we've been closed for uh, two weeks uh, instead of three, but that week before was pretty clear it was coming, which gave us time to kind of at least in the laboratory get for students to get to a good stopping point, and for me to meet with everyone and and you know essentially give them assignments, and you know as a result, I think of that um, you know uh, slowdown period. You know, everyone in my lab is either working on a comprehensive exam, a thesis, writing materials and methods section of a paper, uh, working on a paper, um, and, you know, we were able to coordinate then a uh, weekly uh, journal club, uh, uh, so someone presents, discusses papers, and um, we also have weekly faculty meetings uh, in the department. Um, and then once a week, I have a one-on-one -on -one for 15 minutes with each of the people in my lab. To just touch base, if nothing else, on how they're doing. And, um, you know, I, I think as with all sort of catastrophes, you know, the initial feeling is, you know, oh, my God, I'll never come out of this. How will I survive? And, you know, you're worrying about your family and friends. And, you know, people are in, in, in an equilibrium now, I think. And, and I think it's been helpful to have these ongoing processes. I should point out that I also teach a 70 student undergraduate course and I think the ramifications on those students is going to be worse than on our graduate students uh, to some extent the graduate students can keep busy with uh, you know reading and writing um, I think they need a little bit of a <laughs> impetus to do it and why we do the uh, weekly one-on-one -on -one chats um, there will be definitely a, a, a slow um, uh, you know, rise in activity because, you know, the first weeks we come back, right, it's people are going to be just kind of trying to remember where they were and what reagents died. And, you know, so my fear is that it's easy to say, oh, the universities were closed for six months or four months or two months. But the amount of downtime is going to be much more significant because, you know, for what we all do for a living, you know, getting the mouse made, getting the strain made, getting the clone made, you know, this type of downtime is, is, is magnifying the actual closure time. So science will come back, but it's going to be slow. But I, I really worry more in many ways about the undergraduates and the education side of our graduate students and what they're going to be dealing with because, you know, you get out of a rhythm, and I think it's, it's also really hard to get back into it. Uh, Nick, Terry, Marina, do you have thoughts also on the, the educational side that Jeff was just talking about and hitting on? I'll add one comment. It's, uh, one of the things we have here at Western Michigan University is a well-recognized center that studies STEM education at the undergraduate level. And NSF has reached out to that group who has, uh, currently has a funded grant of looking at STEM education for undergraduates about them, the, our team applying for a supplement to specifically assess sort of the impact, uh, what was good, what we learned. So I do, I agree with Jeff. There are some real challenges, but I think that an organization like the National Science Foundation already anticipating that and looking to engage professionals in assessing what has happened and what we need to do is a, is a positive, forward-thinking action. I want to add, this is Marina, that the pipeline has been uh, broken and affected. So in my institution, there is a hiring freeze right now and there are no visas, J-1 visas for scholars being issued. And I think that this is gonna disrupt 
the natural flow of training career advancement uh, with, with science. And this is one of those things that we're gonna see the effect in years to come. We're not gonna see it right away. So um, I agree with Jeff and with uh, Terry that the student uh, effects are, are great and that the returning back is gonna be slowed down, that there are gonna be things that we're not gonna pick up where we left them. What's an example of, I'm sure everybody is sharing experiences, talking with colleagues, hearing from other faculty or, or administrators. I'm wondering, is there a really good solid piece of advice that you've heard from, from a friend, from a colleague, from some other source that you think is worth sharing with a broader community? Or maybe one you've made up yourself because you're all brilliant. So, so this is Terry. I'll, I would say that what I've seen that's been really helpful is to um, one of my colleagues actually put together a half hour uh, webinar for our, our graduate students and our faculty about how to work from home. And the, the, the really good piece of advice was to say, listen, this is different. It's not just like when you go home and review grants to get out of your office and to really accept that you're going to be working at home for a while and get out and look at some of those resources for people that do this all the time and utilize those to be more effective. I, I'll weigh in on something. Um, uh, I, I've found that our weekly one-on-ones and our weekly journal clubs has been good because, you know, I, I think I'm, I run a lab where the students and, and trainees, postdocs, et cetera, all work and play well together. I think they're really missing each other. And um, while I'm sure they're communicating, you know, outside of the realm of the laboratory, it's really good, I think, when, you know, in, in one Zoom screen, you see everyone's face and they all see each other. And I think, you know, not losing that sense of community, which is really what it's about in science, uh, is, is really important. And um, so I think that's important. I think the other thing, and this is, again, from talking to people who, who uh, work at home for a living, but, um, you know, creating a schedule every day. And, you know, it, it's, it's always good to take a piece of paper and write down, you know, this is what I'm reading. This is when I'll go for a walk. This is when I, you know, really finally have to review those files and edit this paper. And um, I, I think a day-to-day -day schedule and calendar and trying to stick to it, um, including some outdoor time, is, is probably the best thing. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll second that uh, opinion from Jeff. Um, I think having a structure to your day, it's so easy working from home to be get kind of amorphous and think, oh, well, I should do this at some point, but, you know, when's that going to be? To have some structure, even my 80-year-old parents who are uh, um, cooped up in their condo, uh, safe and comfortable, but uh, kind of uh, at loose ends, they've gone to making a, a schedule for what they do all day. And it, it, it was their, actually, advice um, that got me to think, you know, that actually would be really good. It would be good to have that kind of structure just so you know, when going to work really um, provides that uh, for free. And when you're not going to work, you kind of have to do it on your own. The this is Marina, and I agree with everything that has been said. Uh, the only thing that I would like to add is the emphasis on the flexibility and letting go of the assumptions that we had before, because this is clearly a very different way of approaching what we do every day, a very different way of interacting with others. 
Great. Thank you for sharing that. And the last question that I'll throw out to you all, it's a question I've been asking kind of everyone that I've done this. Um, necessity being the mother of invention, are there clever ideas and thoughts that you're seeing um, that are things that people are implementing on the fly right now that you think might be really good, smart ways to maybe do things going forward? You know, the, what's the positive that we can get out of this situation and the way that we're learning to to maybe manage our lab better or do our science better. Um, just wondering if anyone has had an observation of anything like that. This is Terry. I'll share one, which is um, people are realizing how important it is during ongoing experiments to be freezing down their strains. I'm a yeast geneticist. Um, and my student I had beat it into her head that as soon as you had a strain, you froze it down. And she really appreciates that advice and, um, and some of our faculty have also said the same thing, the importance of that. And I'd also say the also the, the benefit of being generous when you share your strains or your mice or your fish with someone else, should something happen to your collection, you have another place to get it. So keeping really good records and realizing that being generous gives you a backup collection of your important reagents. On the teaching side of things, um, I think this has affected us all uh, significantly because um, uh, while I think students are still getting used to, you know, Zoom and, and doing their best to stay as motivated as they would otherwise, which I think is tough when you're off campus and, you know, in your parents' living room, um, I think it's going to change how a lot of us teach because, um, you know, from talking to my colleagues and at our weekly faculty meetings, it's pretty clear that a lot of us have adjusted to the Zoom mentality pretty well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've instituted open book tests, which I never used to do. Uh, so I think this is actually going to be an interesting down-the-road experience where I think, uh, you know, it's ar there's already, of course, a lot of electronic teaching methods used, in use in the classroom at every level. Um, but I think increasingly now at university levels, um, it's, it's really going to give rise to more creative solutions to, problems um, when you can't be there. With regards to travel, what I think is going to be a good outcome of all this is the fact that we are going to realize that travel is not needed for in-person meetings. I'm talking specifically about the possibility that the study section reviews are going to be effectively carried out virtually and it's going to have a positive effect down the line with saving time, reducing the carbon footprint of scientists, and, you know, probably handling the um, sessions and the meetings in a more effective way. Yeah, I think this is really going to change the way that uh, meetings are held uh, going forward. It, you know, it had always been possible for people to, um, to join a meeting by uh, video conference. I think we're going to see in the future a situation where that becomes the norm, that there'll be, you know, it will not be unusual to have half or less, the pe less than that of the people in the room and have, um, you know, half the people uh, uh, calling in on video from outside. And that's, I think, going to make scheduling meetings a lot easier because you're not going to have to get people all in the same place at the same time. Um, it certainly has made our faculty much more comfortable with, uh, uh, with video conferences. Great. Well, I want to thank you all for your time today. I know um, I know we seem to all have open calendars, but also very busy calendars. So I want to thank you for that. 
Um, I appreciate it. I hope everybody stays safe. Um, I hope everyone's able to continue doing their research. Um, and I just want to thank you for your time and sharing kind of what your experience has been. For our listeners, uh, my name is Ben Korb. You can find me on Twitter at BW Korb, where I'm spending time and I'll be there to answer questions if you might have them. Um, this has been another COVID-19 special issue of Pipettes and Politics. Thanks for listening. Thank you.